56 minutes into editing this episode of Hey Kids Comics, news broke of the death of actor Leonard Nimoy. As someone who doesn't so much mourn death as celebrate life, I choose to think that for as long as there is a flickering television set replaying the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, Mr. Nimoy's life will be celebrated. Rest easy, Mr. Nimoy. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the show. Our show. This show. Have we got anything to talk about this week? Other than, uh, I have a shout-out. I have received in the post a comic. A lovely comic. A square-bound comic. And it was even in... A backing board. There plastic was. backing board. Very well prepared. Mm-hmm. I like it. Shipping comics is a lost art. And the comic in question is Batman Chronicles The Gauntlet by Bruce Canwell and Lee Weeks. It's got a great cover. Yeah. It's like just Robin with the cape hanging over him. And uh, Batman in the background, the shadow of the bat. And uh, I'm a big fan of Lee Weeks. I think Lee Weeks is great. Uh, we were talking about Batman The Gauntlet on First Place not too long ago. And I mentioned that it, it was quite expensive, and one that I was watching on eBay had shot through the roof. Well, it was a tenner, which is more than I'm willing to pay <laughs> for a comic book, quite frankly. But Mark Taylor, who we did meet... We did. ...who is your friend... He is. ...because he bought you a beer. That is true. So you love him. <laughs> uh, who is one of the nicest men in the world. I think that, that has just solidified that title mm-hmm. by sending me this. He first booked me and said, I've got a copy of that gauntlet thing. Do you want it? And I said, yeah! (laughs) And uh, it did dutifully arrive in the post. So, thank you very much, Mark. I do greatly appreciate that. I'm very much looking forward to uh, to reading it. Is it Dick Grayson or Jason Todd? Because I don't know anything about this, because I've never read it. I don't know. Uh, Okay, well, I'm looking forward to reading that, and I will report back on uh, whether it's Dick Grayson or Jason Todd. (laughs) So, thank you very much, Mark. That was very much appreciated. Um, Forget to mention last week I'm watching Big Hero 6. We mentioned it last week's episode. We didn't. We talked about Birdman. Did we talk about Birdman? I thought you said you'd been watching Big Hero 6 and then we talked about Birdman. I mean, granted, since we recorded that episode, Birdman went on and won some Oscars. Oscars. Oscar Goldman! He won an Oscar Goldman! (laughs) And... uh, yeah. Um, anyway, so what, what did you think of Big Hero? You did, because you said Stan Lee had a cameo. Did I? Yeah, we mentioned this last week. I don't think we recorded it. We totally did. It's in the show, dude. I know, that show went up today. We're only one week behind now, so I've actually got a slightly better memory. 
not much, as Chris Warden can attest, but a slightly better memory as to what was in the actual episode. Oh, no, I didn't know the show notes. I didn't mention. I was going to call it Kazar and Zabu are Calvin and Hobbes. Completely slipped my mind. <laughs> that was that was great. That was funny. Anyway, should we do an email? Okay. Unless you want to give us a review of Big Hero Six. I think you said it were R eight. It were R eight. Yeah, because I said that's the poster quote. Are people going to think this is a rerun? I'm pretty sure that was Birdman. No, we, we talked about Birdman because I said it's either a, a, an existentialist yeah, yeah, mediation yeah. on depression or the most pretentious piece of crap I've ever seen. Yeah. One of the two, Toss a Con. Yeah. So you're thinking now, aren't you? You just do not remember what we talked What I comics did we talk about last week? Don't do it. <laughs> you don't get a clue, I'm have you? We did Ugazami, Yukamami. Yeah. That one. We did Ukulele. Yeah, the Ukulele, that was it. <laughs> when I'm cleaning windows. We totally did that. Uh, uh, that is a horror story. We, we, we did the, the Captain Britain one. We did Captain Britain. That's it. What was the other one? Um, Doctor Strange. Yeah, we did Doctor Strange. Which, which is great because. It's like we plan it. Yeah. Doctor Strange is in this episode as well. Mm-hmm. Who'd have thunk it? And so Spider-Man. And so Spider-Man. It's like we sat down and mapped it all it's out. It's like we sat down and you said, let's just do Spider-Man. Yeah, I kind of did. No, I didn't. Actually, it was just dumb luck. I mean, if I'd thought about it and if we'd had enough episodes to do it, I may have switched around the order, but we don't. So there was supposed to be a week in between. There was supposed to be a week in between, but I ditched those ones. Mm-hmm. I was reading them, they were alright, but I thought Michael's going to think these are terrible. Even though I thought they were okay. That didn't stop you with most of your other pictures. Shut up! <laughs> Our first email this night is from David Guterres. Loving Dick! It's his subject heading. Well, he doesn't need spurt times up to him, I suppose. Leyland New and Leyland Grey. I'm not grey. And I'm not that new. Uh, not anymore, no. You're pushing 20 this year. Oh, God, yeah. You know, we were talking about this the other day, me and your mum, and we were both like, do you realise, as of six months from now, we will actually be able to say we don't have a teenage son anymore. He's older than that. So you forget the middle child, are you? No, no, no. <laughs> you know what I mean. We're not forgetting. No, no, no. Moving on. Let me tell you, says David, why I love your show. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That was very Frank Gorshin, wasn't it? In the first part of your Robin celebration, there was a moment when Andy talked about seeing himself in Michael and in Adam, including aspects of himself he didn't like. As a relatively new dad, my son James Tiberius is just shy of two. That is a cool name. This is something I've been thinking about quite a bit. You've allowed your listeners into your family. That's something pretty damn special. So thank you for that. If you think we're making your Christmas dinner, you've got another thing coming. Are the the bits you see in me and Adam that you don't like the bits that are me and Adam? No, no. You're both often too sarky, which I am, and you're both often too overly critical, which I am, and it's just, you'll argue with me, and I'll just, I'll have one of those minutes where I go, this is like when I was a kid with my parents. And it's exactly the same. I love growing up staying at Nan and Grandad's house and they just tell me stories about you. Sure so. <laughs> what did they say? <laughs> oh, nothing. <laughs> no, I'm keeping that as blackmail, Dad. Uh, also, Michael, continues David, Paul Smith is amazing. You will see this one day. You will? I don't even remember Paul Smith. Paul Smith, he drew the Kitty Pride X-Men and you were uh, a bit crap. And then he drew the Doctor Strange one we did last week. Ah, uh, okay. So there you go. Do you like him now? Do you think that he's... Do you agree with David that Paul Smith is awesome? I don't dislike him. Everything is awesome. I don't like him, but I don't dislike him. 
That's true. Okay. Thank you, David. Thank you for emailing in. Michael still has no opinion on Paul Smith. I don't remember who he was. Yeah. Excellent. Patrick Kukoran from Robocop Protected Metro Detroit. Hey. Has emailed in. Hello, Team Leyland. Just some quick questions about the past few shows. Great pick by Leyland the Younger with Happy. It is nice to hear that Michael seems to be slowly worrying Andrew down <laughs> in warming to Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison! Yeah. Aye. I can't have anyone with me who's no f***ing with me. Well, that wasn't Lex Luthor, was it? Yeah. Hey, on you. <laughs> I was surprised you two did not mention the fact that Morrison seems to be channeling Jimmy Stewart films. This Christmas and redemption theme fits with It's a Wonderful Life. But seeing the imagery happy reminded me of the 1950 film Harvey, in which Stuart plays a man who believes he sees a six-foot-tall rabbit named Harvey, a puka, which is a creature from Celtic myth. It is odd that we didn't mention that. A, because of Donnie Darko. Right. Which, that sounds like a superhero now, doesn't it? Donnie Darko. But also, in Farscape, when John Crichton starts seeing Scorpius everywhere, he calls him Harvey, doesn't he? Does it? Yeah, he keeps saying, ah, come on, Harvey. Fair you know, when, when, when Crichton starts cracking up, yeah. which leads to some of the greatest episodes of Farscape. Uh, Patrick continues, the crossover shows all brought me back down memory lane. When I was 12, those Judge Dredd Batman crossovers were earth-shaking, amazing concepts. As an adult, I agree that they only really deserve the last 10 minutes of show to discuss. <laughs> Did you really do that in 10 minutes? Probably. <laughs> that was not intentional, Patrick. <laughs> It was an ac- it was it wasn't an accident, but it was it was that's just the way it turned out, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. What does hold up, and if I may be so bold to suggest you two seeking out the Dave Gibbons and Andy Kubert Batman versus Predator? I cannot speak to other volumes, but that first still hits the right notes of both characters for me. Um we probably won't do Batman versus Predator, Patrick. because uh, we are running short on time. Time is the fire in which we burn. But we do have Dave Gibbons coming up, drawing Batman. Do it. I will say no more. <laughs> but if anyone Googles that or goes to Mike's Amazing World, they could probably walk out what we're talking about, probably. given that Dave Gibbons hasn't drawn Batman very much. So you can probably suss that out for yourself. Finally, Patrick says, Andrew, that page of Superman with Thor's hammer and cap shield is as great as you describe. Looking forward to Robin, and thanks to your show for making running miles on ice and snow a bit more fun. P.S. I am happy to hear the health and safety executive return as a reference point in the show. <laughs> we do love doing the health and safety at work act stuff. Yeah. It is. It, it does amuse me. Uh, running on running on uh, snow and ice sounds pretty fun as well. Though. I wonder if like Kate Bush, he's running up that hill. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know Kate Bush either, do you? Yeah, I know of her. All uh, right, but you don't know her songs. There's the one where she screams. That could be any of them. Are you thinking of Babushka? <laughs> babushka, Babushka, Babushka. <laughs> that one. And I'm running up that hill. You totally hit those notes. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Anyway, Bradley Null has also emailed in talking about JL Avengers, which seems to have stuck. Well done, you. This series, says Bradley, is, in my humble opinion, the best superhero comics ever made. 
However, I am a fan of crossovers, this particular team of Avengers, this particular Justice League team, and anything with Mr. Perez drawing lots of people, so I might be biased. The thing is, I didn't believe it was real until it happened. I was one of the fans who had been crushed when the original crossover got cancelled. I also knew there was no way CrossGen was going to let Perez out of his contract. I was then convinced it would fail to live up to the excitement. There were about a dozen things I was convinced were going to stop the book from happening or just ruin it. I have never been happier to be wrong. This series is everything it should be. Thank you for covering it. P.S. I was driving, so I can't remember who you thought was on the cover of issue 3 that was part of the Legion, but I used that cover as one of my iPad's background images, and as I am a huge Legion of Superheroes fan, the only Legionnaire on that cover is Kal-El, no matter how much I might otherwise wish it to be so. So, mm, you know, wasn't a Legion member then. The original Guardians of the Galaxy, who were reserve Avengers, somehow are on the cover. Mayhap that is who you saw. It's possible, Bradley. Uh, we don't have a clue, do we? No. Because that was a good few weeks ago. Well, thank you for emailing in. We, we greatly appreciate that. Mark Lax emailed in. Our is for Robin. Hello once again, Leyland, as always. Girl, love the show, Steve. <laughs> Self-aggrandizing. Robin has always been a very unique character. Of course, my first intro to Robin was through the Batman 66 TV show and the Super Friends. When I started collecting Batman comics, Jason had just become Robin. Expecting Dick Grayson, I wondered to myself who this twerp was. Looking back, I wonder if Jason was truly as unlikable as readers felt and truly deserved his tragic death, but at the time, I suppose he did. The Dick Grayson Robin's relationship with Batman was more loving but also more complicated. To me, Dick could be the only successor to Bruce. While I love Batman Beyond and Terry McGuinness, I feel at that point it should be Dick handing over the mantle. Whatever the future brings for Dick, he will always be a favourite character of mine. Looking forward to the Teen Titans coverage. Keep on track in your friend. Mark Lax. Well, thank you very much for emailing in. And uh, before we knock it on the head, our final email this week is good enough for me, it's good enough for you. Now, he's saying Cindy Lauper, but I went to dodge it. Did you? Because I don't know the Cindy Lauper one. Do you know the Cindy Lauper one? I don't. I, don't, I know the girls want to have fun and I can see your true colours shining through. I know that one as well. That, that was a note you hit. But I don't know good enough for me. Other than dodge it. Good enough for you. It's good enough for me. No? I'm no. just not getting anywhere with the pop classics tonight, am I? I mean, I, I get them, but... <laughs> I wish I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's Chris. Chris Franklin has emailed in. Hello, Leylands. Hello. Christopher. I like this idea of doing just good comics. I know you guys never set out to rip up comics. Well, we would never physically do that. Oh, anyway. no. Throw them across the room. Chuck yeah. them across the room, yeah, but never rip them up. But knowing these are good going in is a nice palate cleanser. Iron Man was really solid in this period. I wasn't a regular buyer, but I did enjoy what I managed to get a hold of. I never got the whole Black Lash thing either. The whole thing was further complicated by merging Whiplash with Crimson Dynamo in Iron Man 2. DC Comics presents annual number one, however, now you're cooking. This is one of my all-time favourite comics. I was already a mark for Eddie Earth 2 story when I picked this off the rack in 1982, but this story further stoked that flame. Like you guys, I loved the Superman of Earth 2 with his no-nonsense, headstrong attitude towards evildoers. Oddly enough, my wife Cindy and I had just discussed the classic Action Comics issue 484, where he and Lois wed, and that Supermates episode, well, Chris says it's going up later today, but as we record this, it's already out, and it's good. They did a couple of episodes about superhero weddings, because, you know, being man and wife. So go and check those out, because Supermates is a really good show. I really enjoy it. Chris and Cindy are really funny. Especially when uh, Chris does to comment on the one woman in the comics and she just smacks him. <laughs> oh, it's funny. 
Always funny. Um, Chris continues. But enough plugging! Oh, never enough plugging. This is superhero comics at its most fun, full of the grandiose potential that no other medium could replicate at the time. Hollywood has caught up with this level of spectacle now. Great characterization and just plain enjoyable, although the ending does seem to shoehorn that Marvel method in, as Andy pointed out. I can't help but think of this as a prequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. When I picked up Crisis 1 nearly three years later and saw Alexander Luther and his Lois, I felt like I had the inside scoop on what may be going on. Given the setting, the characters and the writer, I feel this comic should go into any Crisis Collected edition. Wolfman really seems to be having fun with the multiverse concept here, so it's kind of surprising that he felt it was a stumbling block holding DC's progress back. I still vehemently disagree with that notion, despite the greatness of Crisis itself. Wolf sounds like the kind of horror story you would get in an EC or DC horror mystery title. I love those type of Twilight Zone or O. Henry endings like this story has. It's a shame anthology comics aren't really around anymore. But, as is often the case, I find myself in agreement with Andy on great comics from our youth, since we are roughly the same age. But Michael manages to point me towards some really interesting stuff that I would never have known about otherwise. Just like Mrs. Leyland, I believe Cindy would enjoy this comic as well. Great show. Look forward to more random goodness. Your pal, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for emailing in. Always a pleasure. We will knock it on the head for emails, though. We will pick this up next time. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. Welcome to the third in our short look at classic comics and great stories that, despite having been in the infamous book of topics for many a year, somehow fell through the cracks and were discarded like old bits of tissue. This week's selections are devoted to Spider-Man, which I'm sure will come as no surprise whatsoever to long-time listeners to the show. The issues presented here were on the long list for when we did our Spider-Man episodes many lifetimes ago. This was obviously before I set one of my purely arbitrary rules and decided to restrict the selections to only issues of Amazing Spider-Man, which knocked issues of Peter Parker and Marvel team up out of the running. I don't think an issue of Web of Spider-Man was ever even in the running. Anyway, this also knocked out annuals, which was a shame, as despite how crappy they have become in recent years, annuals used to be really quite cool. I also feel I need to make a distinction here. American annuals were significantly different to UK annuals in that they were just fatter versions of regular comics, whereas the UK counterparts tended to be hardcover, full colour, a rarity back then, and only came out at Christmas. US annuals were much sought after, as not only did they used to be great, but they were also a yearly, hence the name, extra-length story, normally with backups, posters and other treats. They also tended to, for whatever reason, not be distributed over here, or not to my region anyway. As such, although I have both the US editions for the purposes of this show, I originally read both of these in UK reprint form, and I will be referring to both, as is my want. 
Frames of reference, the annuals I'm referring to, are Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 14 and 15, which came out in 1980 and 1981, respectively. However, over in the UK, these came out as winter specials. And if you want to know what they are, I refer you to the Captain Britain show from last week. See what happens when you miss an episode? The first story, The Book of the Vishanti, was reprinted in the Spider-Man and Hulk Winter Special in 1980. This was back when, to reduce costs, Marvel UK had done away with glossy covers on a lot of their weekly output, and as such, the cover and interior paper stock was the same, just like Marvel and Image Comics today. Marvel UK really was a pioneer in many ways. There was also a backup strip in the UK winter special, The Hulk vs. The UFOs. Sadly, unlike a lot of UK comics, this didn't have an original cover, instead repurposing the US one, a really rather psychedelic piece of art by Frank Miller. On it, Spider-Man swings in as Doctor Strange looks like he's been tortured on a crystal as Doctor Doom looms menacingly in the background. This is a really excellent cover with the colouring complementing Miller's excellent use of shadows, so I can see why Marvel UK simply kept it as was. The story was written by Denny O'Neill and drawn by Miller and inked by Tom Palmer, but first I need to say what I say every week. What do you think of that cover, Mike? Uh, I like it. It's great! I like the Doctor Doom. I like the Doctor Doom because he's kind of made up by these shards glowing off the crystal that Doctor Strange is strapped to. Mm. I like the colouring. I like the use of shadows. Something that is exceptional throughout this entire story. Miller's use of, what do you say? Chiaroscuro? That's the one, art boy. I I think this is one of Miller's best work ever. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Tom Palmer as an inker tends to overshadow sometimes his pencillers, but this looks like the perfect combination of both of them. Mm. Both Miller and Palmer. Uh, that shot of Spider-Man is really good. Particularly good shot of Spider-Man, I thought. Having him swinging in. Loved it. Spidey and Doctor Strange versus Doctor Doom and the Dread Dormammu! Nuff said! Is the only thing it says on the cover. King Size Annual. Spider-Man. Not the amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> so, apparently, this was actually Spider-Man Annual number one. Yeah. And as such, is a collector's item. <laughs> I have decreed it thus. Okay. <laughs> so you like the cover? Yeah. I like the cover a great deal. It's bigger as well. It's bigger than uh, annual number, what's it? Slightly. Slightly bigger, yeah. Anyway, shall we tell everyone about this story, which I've already said is called The Book of the Vishanti? It is foretold that once every 60,000 years, the bend sinister will come to Earth, and only a man who is a spider and a sorcerer supreme will be able to combat it. Fortunately, this comic is a Spider-Man comic, and it has Doctor Strange in it. What are the odds? Well, in this instance, that may not be enough, for in Latveria, Doom has used a minion, Dilby, to build a dimensional barrier crosser thing that can transport someone from here to the realm of the Dread Dormammu. Instead of risking Doom's own life, Doom dispatches Dilby to the realm of the Dread Dormammu. Dormammu trains Dilby in his dark arts and keeps Dilby blissfully unaware that he may not survive what Doom and Dormammu have planned. Using his newfound skills, he conjures up a spirit that attacks Doctor Strange. 
Strange is taken unawares, with even the crimson bands of Cytorak unable to combat the Avatar. Even Strange's astral form falls before the onslaught, but before he is pulled down below, he manages to get off a psychic floor. We won't ask how he manages to get that psychic floor off. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Say no more. Said Fleur finds Peter Parker, which will not have been a surprise given that this is his comic. He ditches his class and his date, Deborah Whitman, and webs over to Strange's house where he is attacked by gargoyles. Just another Friday night. Spider-Man manages to manoeuvre the gargoyles into position, webs one of them in a web pack and flings it into the other, smashing them into tiny pebbles. More Greebleys attack, and Spider-Man takes the high ground, alighting upon the roof of Strange's Greenwich Village homestead. The house is a mess, and a wounded Wong, manservant to Doctor Strange, informs Spider that the only clue he can give takes the form of a telepathic message received from Strange. The letters CBGB. Oh, CBGB! This ain't no time for that now! Talking heads, dude. I call that one. All this means to Peter is the punk rock club down the road, coincidentally where he was taking Deb on the date. Arriving at CBGB's Deb's plans to bring about the Bend Sinister is in full force, corrupting a local band into leading the revelers to Central Park with chants of Bend Sinister, Bend Sinister, Mulleram, 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 Sutheram. Spider-Man fights the urge to join them as he follows and sees Doctor Strange tied to a giant crystal over the Latverian embassy with Ndilbe holding court. He tells Strange that when the Ben Sinister happens, mere moments from now he'll be used as a sacrifice and then Ndilbe will rule even over Doom and Dormammu. As the Ben Sinister begins, thanks to the crystal and moon becoming aligned, Spider-Man interferes, but... <laughs> distracts him with another avatar. With Spider-Man so distracted, the Bend Sinister begins and Dilby monologues about total domination. A total domination that didn't allow for Spider-Man, who has managed to steer the avatar into the crystal strange's tied to, blowing it up. Because all the best stories happen with sh blowing up. <laughs> strange is not impressed. Angered, he turns to render judgment, but Dilbe <laughs> is to be punished by another. Spider-Man is duly thanked by Strange, but not impressed when Strange tells him the Bend Sinister was one of those things that man was not meant to know about. Cheers, Doc. As for Dilbe, <laughs> well, Dormammu makes a gift of him to Doom. A Doom that will regroup and replan for another day. What was with the Richard O'Brien impression? <laughs> it was actually um, Dirt Mags' Spider-Man. Oh, okay. He has a Doctor Doom as a character in it. I think he's called Dilby. Right. And the only misstep in that radio adaptation is the casting of Doctor Doom, who does sound like Richard O'Brien. <laughs> you never loved me! So, just, when his name was Dilby, when I was writing, when I was reading the story, when I was writing the synopsis, that's what just kept coming to mind. That, that guy in the radio adaptation went, Dilby. So, I didn't mean it to come out like that, but you kept chuckling. Do so. Dr. Octopus, doing the time war. Sure, you meant Dr. Doom. Dr. Octopus. Oh, for the last one. No, it's Dr. Doom's in it. Dr. Doom's in the Spider-Man. Oh, right. Yeah, Dax and Amazing Spider-Man 5. Right, so okay. that's about to do, and he just keeps referring to him as Dilby. 
and it just gets it does get a little bit silly <laughs> repetition is funny <laughs> yes as we've proved many many times <laughs> uh, the opening translation on the first page of this comic which as we've pointed out is not called The Amazing Spider-Man because mm. Spider-Man apparently isn't amazing this week no, he's, he's, just, he's, just, he's just Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very specific. It's really, 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 really lucky that a man-spider and a sorcerer supreme exist at just this right time, isn't it? It's very lucky that Spider-Man has a costume that looks exactly like that spider. Well, I got that that was just artistic license, but yeah, you're right. I mean, what did they do 60,000 years ago? When, yeah. the, when the Ben Sinister happened. What are we going to do in 60,000 years? When the Ben Sinister happens. Mm. Are we just going to die? That's going to be it? That's the thing that man was not meant to know. Well, we won't know, because we'll be dead. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter to us, does it? Each separate chapter opens with an absolutely gorgeous sepia-tinted panel. And in each case, they're, they're just brilliant. Mm. Absolutely gorgeous, every single one of them. This opening one has Doom and Dormammu sat opposite each other on thrones with a skull between them. I originally thought they were they were playing chess, but it looks like they're playing rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> which is funnier. Yeah. <laughs> Doom and Dormammu play rock, paper, scissors <laughs> for who gets to do the Ben Sinister. And Doom lost. Yeah. So Dormammu was like, all right, I'll do it, but I'll need one of your minions. And Doom was like, oh, you can have... No, that's not Doom voice, is it? Doom will send... Delmi. <laughs> doesn't really work in that Doctor Who fight, does it? <laughs> and you can't say Dilvin not put a stupid voice you can't on. now, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear me. Absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. There's a magnificent panel of Castle Doom in a thunderstorm, which is great. Yeah. Uh, the, the art in this is brilliant. Castle Transylvania. Yeah. Castle Latveri. Don't know. Doom will not like it if you mess up, mess up his postcode. He's not pleased on that. If Doom doesn't get his mail, Doom is not a happy man. Doom is pleased to meet you. <laughs> Doom did not receive this parcel. What do you mean you left it with Doom's neighbour? Doom has no neighbour! Because he doesn't, does he? He doesn't. The, the castle is on, exists a, a big, on, on, its on, a, on a big rocky outcropping. One yeah. wonders how the hell he gets up there. Because there doesn't appear to be a path. Unless he just, like, he built it there and then bombed the surrounding. Yeah. And then never leaves. Yeah. Oh, I've got this idea of Doom going up there on Donkey. <laughs> and Donkey going, I'm making waffles. One of those and Doom going, shut up, Donkey. Tiny little stirs that spiral around the outside. <laughs> you look down and see skeletons of the fallen. If you mention waffles again to Doom, I will cook you for my supper. And Donkey going, oh, quivering, because he's Eddie Murphy. <laughs> um, Palmer is a brilliant inker for Miller in this issue. Uh, I, I love the art in this one. I think it's absolutely fantastic. O'Neill, speaking of the writing as well, not just the art, O'Neill gets a lot of flat for his run on Spider-Man. I don't think it's that bad. I think his run on Spider-Man was all right. I think um, the inking is a bit heavier. Well, it's, Dom, it's Tom Palmer, so basically you've just summed him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is not to say he's not great, because he is. But he is a very heavy inker mm. in comparison to Klaus Janssen, who we will be talking about eh, about ten minutes from now, I would imagine. I can't imagine this one taking as long. Mm. I mean, I could just keep saying dee, 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 to pad out the running time. <laughs> but I won't, because that would be crass. And it would be catchphrase-based comedy, which I don't actually like very much. But, you know, if we can milk it, we will. 
Uh, as I was saying, yeah, Did, Did, Doom's treatment of Dilby in this is hysterically funny, mm. isn't it? <laughs> Dilby does look like Dr. Octopus. Uh, well, I've got that note in later on as well, all the way through this issue. Spider-Man, of all people, does not take the piss out of Dilby for looking like Doc yeah. Ock. You know, that'd be the first thing he did, <laughs> wouldn't he? Do you know a guy named Octopus by any chance? It's it's the bowl cut and the glasses. It is, he does have a bowl cut, he does have glasses. He kind of looks like a mini monk. Yeah. Anyways, I did think when Doom hits him with whatever that scepter is that he's carrying, he's fried his head off. Yeah, he's just blown his head <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, because that, that is what it, it looks like. That scanner's right there. Yes. You dare contemplate food whilst doing the bidding of Dr. Doom? <laughs> I love it when Doom refers to himself in the third person. That is always my favourite bit of any Doctor Doom story. Uh, Doom's pulled this trip before as well. I don't remember if it was before this or after this, because, you know, I've read a lot of comics, and they all kind of uh, blend into into one after a while. But at some point, uh, one would imagine that putting a minion into the machine they've created, because he doesn't trust them, will bite him on the ass. Yeah. Because at some point, like this, Dilby has actually done it properly, hasn't he? He ends up in the world of the Dread Dormammu. Yeah. If Dilby was a little bit smarter, he may have actually pulled this off. Mm. But thankfully, uh, a man spider and one who is a social supreme <laughs> were conveniently on site yeah, to be yeah. able to, to prevent the uh, the bend sinister from happening. Um, Why specifically a spider man? Because it's a Spider Man comic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love your face. Then your face was like, "Oh yeah, all right, whatever." <laughs> because comics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've read a lot of comics. And, uh, <laughs> Rules don't need to matter. Jojo Quisada, it's magic, it enough to make sense. Yeah, he sure. Which he, is bollocks. He's from Krypton. He is from Krypton. <laughs> <laughs> um, Miller's depictions of the realm of the Dread Dormammu evoke Ditko without slavishly aping Ditko, which works exceptionally well. Miller only drew Spider-Man a couple of times. Yeah. He did these two issues. He did two issues of Peter Parker, and then there's, a, there's an issue of Marvel Team-Up, Marvel Team-Up 100, I want to say, mm. and then a couple of covers here and there, but that's, that's pretty much it. But whenever he did him, he did a, a good job of making Spider-Man that kind of wiry, skinny Ditko look. And he also does the same with Doctor Strange, because essentially what you've got in this issue is Ditko's two big creations. Yeah. And Miller does a really good job of evoking Ditko-like imagery without just slavishly ripping Ditko off. Mm. So I, I did think that was, was really good. And Doom watches the uh, the Nazi Germany movie <laughs> for fun. It was, what's her name? Lisa Riefenstaff or something who I made the film about Nazi Germany. I do love that you were reading that and thought it was hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Why do you view all these films of Hitler's Germany? Says a minion. <laughs> to learn from them, fool! <laughs> Says Doom. Which is great. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Um, I do love on these pages that uh, Doom is casually sipping tea. Yeah. From a small teacup Why he's having a, a dialogue between Doom and Dormammu. Why does that not dribble down the inside of his mask? Silly straw. <laughs> <laughs> because he's basically made it so it's like the mask in uh, Flash Garden that yeah. Cletus wears so the bottom moves so he can drink his tea in a very civilised manner <laughs> uh yeah alright fair enough I don't, unless it wouldn't look very dignified for him to have to keep mopping off his chin True, or, yeah. or if he ever takes his mask off and just empties all the tea out <laughs> maybe he's got a designated tea mask <laughs> 
Whenever he fancies a cup of tea, he puts a special yeah, tea yeah. mask on. He, he has a food and drink mask. Does he appeal? Like? Yeah. Bring Doom's food and drink <laughs> mask. Okay. Alright, I'll go with that. I think that's fair enough. Miller was always very good at noir, and he brings that to Burr in this issue. The opening shot of Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, again in the night and bucketing down with rain, is wonderfully moody. That's very Ditka. Mm. The way the rain is, is dribbling off the uh, surrounding buildings. It's kind of Will Eisner as well. Yeah, but Will, well, he is very Eisner influenced, isn't he? Yeah. But uh, he's very good at noir. I especially love the next panel where Doctor Strange is levitating in mid-air with the cloak not attached to him but around him and the only light from the room is coming through that funny shit window yeah. that he has at the top of it. Brilliant lighting. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and shading. Good use of everything. Miller's art is... Uh, I think we're getting boring <laughs> complimenting how fantastic Miller's art is in this issue. And Strange's battle with Dilby is really, really good. Really, really well done. I like that Dormammu, who would surely know these things, had a contingency for Strange's astral form. Yeah. Because that's his go-to get-out-of-jail-free card, isn't it? Yeah. The astral well, form. Well, Dormammu is Doctor Strange's number one uh, it's Nemesis, sister, sister, sister. What, not Baron Nemo? Not Baron Nemo. <laughs> Baron Zemo, no. Mordo, wasn't it? Baron Mordo. <laughs> yeah. Not Baron Zemo. <laughs> not Baron Munchausen. <laughs> not the Baron. <laughs> I just list off all the Barons there now <laughs> until we get to the right one. I do love the, the, the spells that Strange is conjuring up. They're, they're just colour. They're just blocks yeah. of colour. There's no actual art lines there, which is really a really good effect in the comic I don't know how they pulled it off do you think Miller just penciled them and told Palmer to not ink the lines but the colourist had something to follow I don't know how he did it but uh, it's really good I especially like as well because it's so typically Spider-Man that the flur the psychic flur that Doctor Strange sends off goes to everybody else in the Marvel Universe before it goes to Spider-Man Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like the last place that it goes <laughs> the last choice after thought Spider-Man yeah, he goes to the Fantastic Four he goes to the Avengers <laughs> and he thinks alright Silver Surfer no he's not around Thor no alright should we go lower key uh, Daredevil no no sign of Daredevil the Wasp no the Wasp isn't around Ant-Man no Screwball. no Ant-Man uh, yeah uh, Speedball <laughs> Speedball yeah. Speedball's not around oh. Squirrel Girl Squirrel Girl she's busy oh f- <laughs> Finally goes to Spider Man. <laughs> Finally goes to Spider Man. And uh, what is it? Fifteen pages into his own annual, yeah. Peter Parker finally shows up late for the story again. <laughs> He's very tardy, isn't he? He was late last week as well. He was because that's how he ended up with Brian Braddock. At this point in uh, Spider Man history, Peter Parker was a teaching assistant, which means he abandoned his class to go play at being Spider-Man. That would not be allowed under Ofsted rules, <laughs> let me tell you. He would receive an instant grade four yeah. for abandoning his class. I don't care if you're going to save in the universe. I don't care that I wouldn't be here to give you this grade if you would not gone to save the world, Peter Parker. You're getting a four for leaving your class. <laughs> Bloody Ofsted, says Peter, as he groans and whines and moans. Although, to be fair, Deborah Whitman did just show up for the date... So I, I presume we can assume that he's not far from the end of his class anyway. Mm. So maybe Ofsted wouldn't notice. It's normally some old fuddy-duddy who falls asleep in the corner anyway. <laughs> Does so. he even have Ofsted in America? 
They probably have a, a version of it. Yeah. I can't believe the, the, the government in America doesn't mess with education as much as they do over here. Another chapter... Another beautiful noir tin shot, this time of Spider-Man swinging through the city in the thunder, lightning and rain. That is gorgeous. It's the same panel layout as the Doctor Strange introduction, isn't it? Yes, it's the same panel layout on every one of the the new chapters. Mm. Uh, It's basically a two-page... It's not a splash, but you have the sepia-tinned intro prologue thing, then a a long panel, widescreen panel covering two pages of the main character and lots of little panels below. Um, Miller is really good at getting Spider-Man's dynamism and and ability to bend and contort his body while still making him look like he's doing it naturally and not breaking a few bones to do so. So uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Loved it. Loved it lots. Spider-Man's always been a tad incredulous when dealing with the weird and wacky world of Doctor Strange. And it is fair to say that these kind of stories are a little bit out of his league, mm. aren't they? But O'Neill gets around this by having Spider-Man point out that this is weird and wacky and he doesn't really like it, which brings the audience on his side, which is always a neat trick when you're putting a character like Spider-Man into a setting that doesn't really serve him best. Yeah. You actually have him as a character go, I really don't like all this mystical b- Yes, but it you're not me. having him be out of character, or yeah, be just, a part of it. You're having him acknowledge that this is not me, but oh well, better deal with it. Yeah. Uh, ben Sinister's going to kill the world. <laughs> I don't know who Ben Sinister is. <laughs> ben Dover Sinister. Oh. No idea what that's all about. Um, there's a woman after he's just saved the gargoyles from uh, destroying him by destroying them. There's a really funny panel of some woman giving him grief. Mm. And he just webs her mouth up. <laughs> Which is funny. I like okay. I like Spider-Man when he's a bit of a shit. Give it, giving uh, Jonah really some am- ammunition, though, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to to be honest, to be fair, Michael Bailey should copyright that, because I keep saying it a lot. Uh, she doesn't seem to recognise in the dark that it's Spider-Man. Yeah. But surely the gobful of webbing she just got <laughs> will give it away. And another reason here why... Um, why organic webbing doesn't work uh, basically he's just took a dump in her mouth if that's organic webbing yeah so maybe he ate pineapple beforehand or lots of eggs (laughs) by all accounts Uh, excellent fight choreography from Miller some great colouring from Ben Sean who I don't think we've mentioned in the sequences where Spider-Man is attacked by the Greeblies and the Gremlins this is a rare issue where it looks great in both the US original and the UK black and white reprint, which is fantastic. Peter Parker was taking Deb Whitman to CBGB's. Mm-hmm. Peter became much cooler when he went to college, didn't he? Yeah. Can you imagine going to CBGB's when he was in high school? Why? Why did the band playing kind of look like Vietnam-inspired village people? <laughs> the band playing uh, Shrapnel are actually a real band. And if you go through this comic, there is an actual advert drawn by Frank Miller and Joseph Rubenstein oh, yeah. advertising the song Combat Love. So I presume the, the way that they're dressed as Vietnam veterans or just veterans generally is part of their image as, uh, as rock stars. Uh, to be honest, I'm surprised CBGB's hasn't been mentioned before, given that it was on Bleecker Street where Doctor Strange lives. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have to tell anyone who's listening to this what CBGB's is, do I? Should I? Just in case. Alright, CBGB's was the legendary punk rock nightclub that saw such great names as Talking Heads, The Ramones, Joan Jett, Blondie, Blondie, and many, many others play. It's even name-checked in the Talking Heads song Life During Water. 
And it even got a film recently, didn't it, called CBGB's? Did it? Yeah, I think a documentary about it. Because isn't it closed down now? Oh, yeah. Isn't it, it shut down? Well, a few years ago. So, uh, which is a shame, because I would love to have gone to CBGB's. Mm. One plus I would have loved to have gone to go. I think it would be great. Peter bumps into Deb at the club and then stands her up again, which is typical of how the relationship went. He was dreadful to Deborah <laughs> Whitman. He really was a... a, a is she the one who wrote the book about him? Yes. After she found out that he was Spider-Man, right. he convinced her that he wasn't Spider-Man by making her think she was mentally insane. <laughs> so when he revealed himself, he this I'm not making this up. He did. So when he revealed himself after Civil War, she wrote a tell-all book, basically saying why Spider-Man's a bastard and why I can't stand him. And that's that's the truth. That's fair enough. So uh, so she did come back a little bit in um, in uh, Peter David's run on uh, whatever that was called. Um, what was it called? Friendly Neighbourhood Spider, uh, that was it. I've already mentioned Shrapnel, who were playing on stage here. Um, it's a nice little character bit that Deb Whitman is into punk and new wave. Because mm. I don't think Peter has ever been given a musical taste, has he? Kind of strikes me as a Billy Joel man. Yeah. Maybe Bruce Springsteen. I think, I think Peter would probably lean more that way. Mm. Although he probably would have liked Talking Heads. Because they, were, they yeah. were a bit arty and punky in college, you weren't they? The polo shirts. Yeah, I think he would have liked that. Uh, it's rather stupid of Peter, having met Deb back at the club, to offer to take her to the all-night steakhouse in the middle of trying to stop the Bend Sinister. Yeah. Surely he knows he's going to end up disappearing again. And don't yeah. call me Shirley. <laughs> I thought you were going to do that airplane gag then. It's quite disappointing <laughs> that you didn't. So he's only going to end up disappointing her, which seems a bit stupid, but, you know. It's been mentioned many times by people far more learned than ourselves that New York is a character in Spider-Man stories, and here it genuinely feels like it mm. in this issue. Miller captures New York magnificently. Great shots of Spider-Man over Greenwich at CBGB's, swinging over Washington Square, which is one of my favourite shots in the issue. Absolutely love that panel. Um, finally, Central Park. We see him in Times Square. All these landmarks that we know well, looking convincingly realistic, but with Spider-Man in them, which was you know what Marvel did the best. Uh, it's great use of shadow throughout the story. I think this may be the best Frank Miller artwork I've seen in ages, mm. even if it is like 35 years old, probably more than that. Yeah, 1980 it came out. So yeah, uh, Dilby talks a great deal at the end with that actually telling us what the Ben Sinister is. Yeah. He never actually mentions, does he? D- does he think he, act- he doesn't know and he's just trying to uh, act all tough? You think he's just he's just talking bollocks? He's just BSing, yeah. Right. Yeah, alright, yeah. I could go with that. Because yeah. clearly Dilby doesn't know what the hell's going on, does he? <laughs> he thinks he's in control, but Domamu and Doom had this all planned from the very beginning. He's a mere pawn. He is a mere pawn in the schemes of Doom. And therefore you will pay for your transgressions. Which is what he does, mm-hmm. in many ways. Uh, Spider-Man gets very, very annoyed by that at the end. Yeah, Doctor yeah. Strange basically says to him, Forgive me, I cannot tell you what the Ben Sinister is. It's better than mankind not know. Bye! <laughs> and Spider's like, what the... What? what? Yep. Which is funny. And I love that he doesn't even anger around. He tells him that and leaves. <laughs> Farewell. I don't actually think the Ben Sinister wasn't all that, really. Doctor Strange just didn't want to tell him. Really, what happens is, it's just a spell that makes everyone wear their underpants on their head. <laughs> What's it really going to destroy the world? Well, Doctor Strange just doesn't like Spider-Man. <laughs> he's he's uh, tied up, and he's expecting the Avengers or the Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man comes swinging along. Hell, he even would have settled for Ant-Man or yeah, Squirrel yeah, Girl. Yeah. 
Oh, bugger, it's this guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, the squirrel girl's a real thing, don't be dissing that squirrel girl. I, I, you know I have to consider that, but it's genuine. <laughs> It is possible that that's, that's the... Re- I don't want to talk to you. I don't even like you. I know you're created by the same guy, but... Maybe that's why they're competing for Ditko's favourite creation. <laughs> that actually makes a whole lot of sense, and I like that through. Uh, Michael's already mentioned that, that Spider-Man goes through the final confrontation mocking Dilby. Yeah. Because that's Spider-Man, that's what he does. Never once mentions he looks like Dr. Octopus, mm. as you pointed, which would have been the first thing you mentioned. And the final fight sequence is, uh, is really good. Really tense, very action-packed, very funny. High stakes, real sense of jeopardy. It was a good climax to the story. The colouring, again, deserves praise with the use of red and crimson. And the final page has just been wonderfully done after pages of dark, murky visuals set in the rain. It was really good. And the final conclusion, as opposed to the not final conclusion, uh, very pleased with Doom and Dormammu. Happy to remain this behind the scenes in this one. And uh, Dilby's final fate, which is to basically just be encased in glass, mm. shrunk down to tiny size, and given to Doctor Doom as a present. I love that Dormammu wrapped it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that there, there are two midgets stood on each other's hands on, on the next panel. So Doom only employs midgets as his minions. Because he, he can't fight back. That's true. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. What did and, you think of that? Because one? I don't know, maybe when Doom wants a laugh, he just looks at his minions. <laughs> what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's, I think it's I, a lot I, of fun. I, I, I did kind of like how Spider Man's only in it just before halfway. And he doesn't do a great deal, and then at the end of it, he doesn't know what, <laughs> what it the hell's he going did. on. Yeah. He's like Indiana Jones, and he, <laughs> yeah. he just kind of blunders through this adventure, not knowing what the hell's going on, making it up as he goes he, along. He never does and then when he gets to the end, to him. yeah, big act of God solves the whole issue, yeah, yeah. and he's like, what the hell? <laughs> Until the one issue where he goes, it's aliens. <laughs> those faults <laughs> I thought this was a great single issue it's never going to feature in anyone's top ten list of great Spider-Man stories because you know nobody dies in it but what it does do is tell a great interesting story and it does it well doesn't it it's solid entertainment O'Neill's writing is clever witty full of great lines for Spider-Man O'Neill has Peter Parker tend to be a bit of a dick yeah. in his run on Amazing Spider-Man but it works here because Peter's distracted firstly by his class then by the message from Doctor Strange then by trying to keep Deb happy and finally after all he's been through being told he doesn't need to know what's going on because he wouldn't understand his frustration's understandable and in this case O'Neill does a great job with the story Miller's art is it an all-time high? I could sing Rita Coolidge there if you want me to James Bond it's an all-time high now that note, be that. Uh, I don't know how much of this is the responsibility of Inca Tom Palmer or if Miller was doing tight pencils for the issue, but whatever the case, it works. New York looks as real as it ever has in a Spider-Man comic. The choice of making it a dark and stormy night out of the atmosphere and the feeling that the end of the world could be brought about by this little man who Miller depicts as short, pudgy guy with a bowl coat is actually quite genuine, a really good issue. No more, no less. I loved it as a kid. Uh, I did now. I mean, it may be that I read it at just the right time, what, 1980, or something like that, but I loved every page of it, and I'm happy that I loved every page of it when I read it for this. I thought it still stood up. Mm. Very entertaining in many ways. And you liked it too. I did. Which is always nice. 
second story that we're covering tonight was reprinted in the Spider-Man Winter Special in 1982. By this point, the glossy covers had returned, although the magazines themselves were still black and white. What is notable about this reprint is that it ditched the US cover in favour of an original piece of work by Steve Dillon. The US cover for Amazing Spider-Man Annual 15 was by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen and is a POV shot of Dr. Octopus's arms reading a newspaper, holding coffee in one of his arms, whilst two others look at the cover to the Daily Bugle. The cover shows a photo, presumably by Peter Parker, of Spider-Man avoiding being filled full of lead by the Punisher. The headline reads, Spider-Man versus the Punisher, which isn't particularly creative. I think the Bugle should hire a new headline writer, (laughs) quite frankly. The UK cover brings the black and white image of the US cover to life. And isn't it weird to think that when this was published, newspapers were only available in black and white? didn't have colour at all. Uh, Full colour shot of the Punisher firing at Spider-Man whilst Dr. Octopus pulls his symbolic giant thing in the background. Both are good. Dylan's is perhaps a tad more dynamic. The cover to the US edition gives this comic a date. The Daily Bugle is cover dated Saturday 12th of September 1981. I don't know if Saturday was... September the 12th in 1981. I suppose I could have looked it up and it could be asked. Reckon. <laughs> it really matters, does it, now? Yeah. At this point. What do you think of that cover, Michael? I really like it. Do you? I, I, I like that he's got a little cup of coffee. <laughs> well, villains have to drink, too. I picked these two issues specifically because thematically they are linked by the fact that the villains both have a drink of a hot liquor. <laughs> That is attention to detail. I thought so. I thought you were going to say that's a tenuous link. Either that or... (laughs) (laughs) What's that I smell? (laughs) What's what's that? It's the distinct aroma of... (laughs) (laughs) When did we start being family friendly? (laughs) When you grew up? Yeah, we can believe it, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, okay. There's going to be a lot in this one. It's like we're talking about Grant Morrison again. (laughs) The story for this one. As J. Jonah Jameson read his yet another Spider-Man menace article for the Daily Bugle's front page, Robbie Robertson, editor, urges caution. The last time the Bugle ran an anti-Spider-Man article, circulation fell to below 5 million. The only other story is an event Peter Parker and Ben Urich are covering, a phony faith healer named Turhan. Jonah harumphs that nothing will come of that story. But at that precise instant, the Punisher pulls a trigger and Turhan gains an extra hole in his chest. Sadly, he was in the middle of demonstrating his death touch, actually a ring laced with poison, but with the Eastern Mystic now feeding the tree, the girl he touched will soon be dead for reals like yo. The ring in question is currently in the morgue, however its deadly poison is still most effective as a greedy coroner learns to his cost. The Punisher wants that ring and arrives at the morgue preparing to cut the finger off Turhan if necessary. But Dr. Octopus also wants the ring. If you like it then you better put a ring on it. And sadly the Punisher is no match for him. Ock doesn't tarry. He steals Turhan's body and makes tracks. As Spider-Man has to make do with Peter Parker's journalist contacts, he learns what the Punisher already knows, that Turhan was to take delivery of the poison that lets him play the Death Touch gag. Therefore, the Punisher beats Spider-Man to the location, the poison to be dumped in the sea at Pier 43, but Doc Ock beats them both 
The Punisher follows the drug to its destination, the undersea lair of Dr. Octopus. But once again, Oc gains the upper hand and spooges a vial of poison all over the Punisher's face, even as he calls the New York murder, telling he plans to murder five million people just to establish his credentials. After these people are dead, well then Doc will have demands. Spider-Man, still a little behind, remember, arrives, smashes through a wall, not terribly smart, in an underwater hideout, and prepares to tackle Doc Ock, who merely informs him of the Punisher's predicament. As Spider-Man struggles to cure the Punisher amid cascading water, Ock flees. Spider-Man not only cures the Punisher, he then cures the ill girl as well, before turning the story of Ock's threat to kill five million people. Jonah is up against a deadline and decides to run Peter's story. He quickly replates the front page and heads to the presses to watch today's edition being published. However, Dr. Octopus is already here, adding a special ingredient to the ink. Fortunately, Spider-Man has figured out how Ock is to kill five million people, and like a streak of light, arrives just in time. He manages to avoid Ock, but Jonah is in the way, so in between saving his sorry ass, Spider-Man has to stop Ock, which he does by sneakily trapping his arms in between the presses. The Punisher recovers but is arrested, and Jonah feels that he finally has a great story to run, until Robbie points out that if people think the bugle is poisoned, they won't buy it. Enraged, Jonah is forced to run the Spider-Man Menace story. That one didn't have Dilby in it. <laughs> Dilby. <laughs> no story will ever come up now that, that Dilby... I wonder if he ever made another appearance. I don't know. I'd be very upset if that's his only appearance. Mm. I mean, as Marvel currently is, he'd probably give him his own comic. <laughs> Put him in every Spider-Man ever and then spin him off into his own book. Yeah. He, he is Spider-Man somewhere in the Spider-Verse. You think so? Yeah. He managed to make the Ben Sinister work yeah, yeah. and became Spider-Man. And he became the uh, the man-spider. That in 60,000 years will stop the next Ben Sinister. Yeah. Uh, Alright, fair enough. Uh, as with the last annual, there is a vein of dark humour running through this story that O'Neill didn't tap into when he was writing Batman. Jonah's frustration at the Spider-Man many story being dropped is funny. But it's also a nice little character bit. It shows Jonah will listen to Robbie, you know, when he's got no choice. Mm. Equally funny, Spider-Man's first confrontation with the Punisher, which takes place after the Punisher uh, kills the Turhan. I didn't bother mentioning it in the synopsis, you know, what was the point? It's just a fight. The Punisher basically shoots Spider-Man's web shooters off his wrist. Yeah. Which was a remarkably cool move Mm. from the Punisher. I liked that an awful lot. Some excellent panel layouts here as well. Especially once Spider-Man appears showing off Miller's Ditko influence. I particularly like Spider-Man flashing the spider signal. And the Punisher just coolly and calmly taking aim and just nailing it with no problem. I did think Spider-Man saying, he shot me, I'm going to die, was a bit over the top. Yeah. Given that I'm sure Spider-Man's been shot before. He must have done, yeah. I know he got shot in the Black Cat issues that Roger Stern runs, so that may have been just after this. Mm. But uh, I'm struggling to remember if Spider-Man's ever been shot other than that. Because he is quite quick. Yeah. So I actually think it makes sense that he wouldn't have been. The only time I remember is in the Ultimate Verse. I don't remember that at all. Venom. Oh, but it's the Ultimate Verse. So. Yeah. Don't count anymore, does it? It's all going to merge into one, isn't it? Yeah. Battlefield or world. So I guess in some sense, yeah, you get shot. (laughs) Yeah, whatever, he's dead, whatever it is. I love the Punisher in this story. Yeah. This is a very deadly, uncompromising Punisher. I liked it a great deal as a kid. 
Uh, although I still think Mercy Bullets are stupid. Yeah. I thought they were stupid as a kid. I think they're stupid now. Mm. It's like he's shooting people. Don't give me this Mercy Bullets crap. I actually think that's worse. Yeah, because the you're kids implying think, that. Yeah, you're kids think the Mercy Bullets, bullets are kill, real. Yeah. yeah. It's it's shocking. Mm. I, I think that that's an, one of the instances of the uh, the Comics Code Authority really screwing up. Um, this is how I always like Doctor Octopus to be played as well. This is a very no nonsense, quite merciless Doctor Octopus. I mean, granted, we're not lingering on the question of how he manages to beat the Punisher so easily. A man who just beat Spider-Man with no problem. Mm. Yet Doctor Octopus can never manage to beat Spider-Man until Superior, obviously. Yeah, it's one of those things uh, where Doctor Octopus is often portrayed as bumbling and incompetent, despite being really cool, uh, really, really smart. I actually think he's the the arch Spider-Man adversary more than the Green Goblin. Yeah, I think it's Doc Ock because, as people have pointed out, he's the flip side of Peter Parker. Genius scientist, experiment gone wrong. Yeah, give him whatever power Opposite he's got. Sides of the yeah. morality card. I I still maintain Doctor Octopus is the main Spider-Man bad guy, but the Green Goblin didn't really do anything apart from find out who he was. Yeah, and then go a little bit back crazy and throw Gwen Stacy off a bridge. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, all Doctor Octopus, all the Green Goblin wanted to do was essentially be. Um, uh, Humphrey Bogart just run the, the rackets he wanted to be Jimmy Cagney yeah so he wasn't really that much of a threat to Spider-Man other than he wore a gaudy costume <laughs> Dr. Octopus is a threat to him mm. or I think he is I think Dr. Octopus is the main Spidey bad guy uh, Ben Uritz teams up with Jimmy Olsen uh, Peter's not going to like the competition <laughs> but uh, this Jimmy Olsen does sleep with his camera uh, he eats with his camera he sleeps with his camera would explain a lot about Jimmy <laughs> I am a writer so, uh, dude, that, that was a fight that never happened in Jail Avengers. Yeah, Jimmy Olsen and Peter Parker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just chilling out and going, should we take photos? Yeah. See what happens. Ben Urick versus Lois Lane. <laughs> that would actually be really cool. <laughs> ben Urick and Lois Lane after the same story. Yeah. That is actually a crossover that I think would work. It could have, yeah. And you'd have to have Spider-Man and Superman in the background up to their own stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Ben and Lois would just be the subplot, but I think that would be brilliant. <laughs> ben Urich goes to Metropolis tracking down a story that Lois is already working on. Yeah. Yeah? That would work. <laughs> I like that idea. I think we should pitch that, but Quizard would probably say no. Yeah. Five-year timeline. He's not in... Uh, he's, that's the other guy. Convergence. <laughs> Battle World, Secret Wars. What if Kisada had to deal with the same person? I don't know. I notice she never, never seen him in the same room <laughs> <laughs> at the same time. I love the little continuity touch that Doctor Octopus is using his own master plan to hide out, which is underwater. Mm. You probably don't remember that, but I thought that was nice that he did that. Wait, did, was that not a superior thing they went back to? He did go back in superior, yeah. Mm. But it was primarily the Dick Gore stuff. It sure was convenient that Dr. Octopus left around all his notes, thus enabling Spider-Man to find a cure for the Punisher, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, we can argue that Doc Ock left in a bit of a hurry, but you'd have thought Octopus would be somebody who had everything in his head Mm. and didn't write things down. But without this, Spider-Man doesn't fight to find a cure, the Punisher dies, he doesn't go on to have lots of series in the 90s, (laughs) nor have three brilliant movies. Brilliant. Well, maybe not brilliant. An okay movie. Yeah, and I've never seen Punisher Warzone. 
No. I'm presuming you're not saying that the Dolph Lundgren one was the okay movie. Wait, which one was that? I don't know, I've never seen it. Was that the third one? No, that's the first one. Is it? Dolph Lundgren was the Punisher. Yes, yes, yes. Which was, when did that come out? God, late 1980s, early oh, okay, 1990s. Yeah, I'm thinking of the John Travolta one. Uh, I quite like that one. I like that one. <laughs> I think that one's quite good. I think Thomas Jane's quite good, isn't it? Well, that's just me. Excellent and very funny fight scene in the Bugles presses, with Miller managing to make Ditko homages even more overt by giving us a full-page splash akin to those in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. In this case, Spider-Man punching Doc Ock's lights out. Absolutely fantastic. And there's a really nice ending for the Punisher where he refuses to kill the young police officer. And a very nice line where he says the good things about prisons. There's a lot of criminals in there. Because mm. that's very Rorschach, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with me. That's that's really good. I like the, the panels where he decides not to and he says he is the law. Where's your dread? Mm. Uh, I think the Stephen Grant miniseries picks up from this with the Punisher in jail, doesn't it? Does it? Or is the Daredevil Punisher stuff before this? I don't remember, I'm mixing up my timelines. But yeah, the Stephen Grant miniseries is in jail. Right. So it picks up from, from him being in jail. What did you think of it? Um, I, I liked it. I mean, I didn't think it was as good as the first one. Did you know? Did you like Ben Sinison more? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the Punisher in this one. I do. I like this brutal and uncompromising Punisher. And I like the art in this one more. It's more Frank Millery. Did you like this more than the, the what's his name stuff? Yeah. Right. I like Frank Miller when he's you know the the, the Daredevil Frank. The Frank Miller. Miller that you know. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's fair enough. See, I prefer the Tom Palmer stuff, but uh, I thought this was wonderfully engaging, massively enjoyable romp. The five million circulation clue is dropped for you right there on page one. Yeah. And although I kept signposting it through the synopsis, the actual story doesn't really do that, does it? Mm. It drops it there on page one for you and then doesn't kind of mention it. And by the time it comes up again, you've yeah. forgotten about it. By the it. time you get to the end of the issue, you go, oh, all right, he set that up very good. Yeah. Uh, this fur rattles along at a decent clip. O'Neill's story's funny. He even manages to get a dig in at Batman mm. when Doc Ock states that poisoning the water supply would be crass, <laughs> which is a dig at the Joker, isn't it? Yeah. It's well-paced. The Punisher works exceptionally well in this story, neither detracting to nor really adding much to the story, but he's handled very, very well. I would have liked to see this team handle more Punisher stories. Mm. I mean, as Michael's pointed out, the, the art is much more Miller and Jansen in the Daredevil era, and as such, it's not as polished as the last issue, featuring that scratchy look that, that Jansen frequently brought to Miller's Daredevil work, but nor is it as bad as some of the later collaborations on that title, where essentially Klaus Jansen was just doing it yeah, all, wasn't yeah. he? And Miller was barely doing anything. There's the usual great attention to light and shadow that Miller is justifiably known for, and all told, this is an undiscovered and little referred to gem of a comic. Mm. I thought. I love both of these. I do think the Ben Sinister one has the edge because there's an element of humour to that one. Yeah. The, this one's funny but five million people are going to die. Although in that one the, all of New York's going to die. Well, I think what it is is the second one's more serious but still the, 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 the bad parts of it stand out more. Yeah. Whereas in the first one they acknowledge that it's out there so it's not as bad. No, I love both of them, though. I think they're both good. One thing we didn't mention, Amazing Spider-Man Annual 14 has uh, the cartoon adverts, which we love. 
Yeah. Because it's always a case of what did we get. NBC had the Godzilla Dynamo show, which we got. We got Godzilla because it's Godzilla and Godzuki. And Godzuki. Godzuki. Up from the depths. <laughs> 30 stories high. Breathing fire. His head in the sky. Godzilla. And it's really dramatic. And then all of a sudden you get, I'm Godzuki. It was atomic <coughs> breath, but okay. Right. And I always like Dino Mutt. And, um, was he the Falcon? Oh, what's that thing that's just a big hurry thing with, with arms and legs? I remember that's that. That's Captain Caveman! Yeah, yeah. Captain Caveman! And the Teen Angels was the three girls that were with him. Uh, not based on Charlie's Angels in any way. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah, I loved Captain Caveman. That Captain Caveman was brilliant. The new Schmoo! I liked the new Schmoo as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we got a lot of these. The mm. Flintstones. Well, of course we got the Flintstones. I already got the Flintstones. We never got the Frankenstones. I don't know what that was. No. We got the Space Ghosts. We did get Space Ghosts coast to coast. Yeah, that was good. Um, Daffy Duck Show, the Herculoids, the Jetsons, Teen Force, Astro and the Space Dogs. I don't remember any of them. I don't remember us getting any of that. Do you remember that. the Jetsons? Oh, I remember. We got the original Jetsons. Right, right, right. But in 1980, well, this had been repeats. George Jetson. So, yeah, it's entirely possible that there were repeats. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man Annual 15 also has an NBC advert. Smurfs were on again. Did the Smurfs ever go away, really? It did, and then it came back to bad movie. Oh, okay. The Flintstones are a terrible movie. The Flintstones comedy show. That may have been new episodes. I don't know if we ever got them. The Kid Superpower Hour with Shazam. Not called Captain Marvel. Oh, yeah. You'll notice. Space Stars is more Space Ghost, Herculoids, all that stuff. Spider-Man is Amazing Friends! Hour Blocks. They always showed him in Hour Blocks. Yeah. Or half an Hour Blocks, I would imagine. And Rocky and Bullwinkle. But Spider-Man is Amazing Friends is the one that we need to talk about later, isn't it? Yeah. I watched one of them the other day. Yeah. Just by pure chance, I put one on the stick seven little superheroes it's brilliant in that not really very yeah, good yeah. at all kind of way but I'm watching it and I'm humming the background score <laughs> I've not watched an episode of his, uh, Spider-Man's Amazing Friends in decades maybe it's just lost in there yeah, well it is because they use the same one every week all right. <laughs> same score every week and I'm pretty sure they used it for other cartoons of that vintage yeah. so probably Dungeons and Dragons CBS have Toon Time they get a two-page advert. I think we've covered some of these before, but Quickie Koala, he's Quickie Koala, we got that. Trollkins, no idea. Bugs Bunny Roadrunner, we got that. Popeye and Olive Oil, we got Popeye. I don't think we ever got Blackstar. Tarzan, Lone Ranger, we got that. Zorro, we got that. Fat Albert, we never got Fat Albert. Uh, but we did get Tom and Jerry. Why is Tom toxic green? Where's Tom? Oh, yeah, he's coloured green, isn't he, instead of grey? Maybe just a colour in Mr. Cover, yeah. But this being an annual as well, Amazing Spider-Man annual number 15, you got some extra stuff. Just how strong is Spider-Man? Well, um, it's a horrible drawing of Spider-Man. It's not a very good drawing of Spider-Man by Bob Layton, which is a shame, because everyone else is brilliant. Yeah. But he's, uh, he's, he's like George Perez, isn't he? He can draw everybody except Spider-Man. Yeah. There must be something about Spider-Man, but it isn't a very good Spider-Man drawing. Uh, basically, this is ranking where Spider-Man comes in the super-powered ranks of Marveldom Assembled. The super heavyweights are Hulk, Thor, Hercules, Wonder Man, yeah. and Iron Man. Would I you mean, really have put Wonder Man in that class? I wouldn't have put Iron Man up there. Why not? Well, how are your uh, Iron Suit, what are you? Well, it's, it's, obviously he's including him in the suit. <laughs> The heavyweight, the thing. See, the thing should have been in the top one. You think? Yeah. yeah the thing should have been there more than Wonder Man or Iron Man. Yeah. Uh, Submariner. See, I think Submariner should be top dog. Mm. Sasquatch. Um, 
Who's he? Oh, it's Doc Sampson, isn't yeah, it? The yeah. Vision. Is that Tundra? Yeah. And Black Bolt, who doesn't say anything, <laughs> which is funny. The super medium weights. You've got Valkyrie She-Hulk, who doesn't like being under Hulk. Luke Cage power. The Silver Surfer's only in the super medium weight. He's got the power cosmic. Yeah, but it's not body strength. Oh, right. I need not rely on sheer brute strength for mine. His power car. There you go. Well done. Giant Man, Colossus, Ghost Rider, and Spider-Man are in the super medium weight. The medium weights, Tigra, uh, Black Knight, Werewolf by Night, Spider-Woman, The Beast, who's uh, ogling Spider-Woman. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. <laughs> and Captain Britain. Honestly, I have no idea who that guy is. I know he's in the Pre- Project Pegasus story. Captain Nazareth? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Having it. <laughs> Genius. Um, and then the rest don't actually have superpowers, Spider-Man says. So in that ranking, you've got the Falcon, Kazer. Iron Fist, Black Panther, Captain America, Moon Knight, Daredevil, The Shroud, Wolverine, Hawkeye. Oh, that's pretty good. Then you've got Peter Parker's apartment. For those of you that were really interested in how Peter Parker lived and what the floor plan of his apartment was. Uh, And then you've got a gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes, which is Man-Wolf and his appearances. The Hulk tackles the Fumi Goonies in the uh, Hostess Fruit Pies ad, which is more... TV Hulk, isn't yeah. it? Than it is comic book Hulk. The Jackal of the Punisher and the Tarantula end it on a gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes. So that was uh, that was good. Good annual, good couple of annuals. Really enjoyed it very much. Very good. Very nice. I will now turn over the con to Michael as he tells us what his pick. My choice for this week comes in the form of a short story from Sandman Endless Nights from 2003. Contained inside it is short stories, one for every member of the Endless, all written by series writer Neil Gaiman, uh, and each story has its own artist. Uh, Every story does focus on a different member of the Endless at different times in their lives, set before, during, or after the main series. Uh, having returned from a week in Venice, I had thought of covering Death and Venice by P. Craig Russell. But after a brief discussion, we opted for a different story. Despite no longer being topical, we <laughs> picked this next choice based on some controversy that happened a few months back. We chose this story in defence of Italian artist Milo Manara. This controversy arose when Marvel hired him to do the varying covers for their new Spider-Woman ongoing series, but only the first ever saw the light of day. Despite being a much better cover than the standard, the variant became the cause and victim of a wave of criticism due to its sexual implications and portrayal of women. Regardless of your opinions on the implications of the cover, Manara brought his specialty to that cover, the female form, something that is seen in a great deal more in this story than on that cover. Should we discuss... Should, yeah, should, should, we, should we weigh in on it? Um, I, I didn't really have an opinion on the Ferrer over... The Ferrer over Milo Manera's cover to Spider-Woman because I didn't see anything wrong with it. Yeah. You know, as was pointed out by any number of people on the internet who probably can instantly rattle off covers from the top of their heads better than I could, mm. there are any number of covers of male and female characters in positions far more suggestive than that one was. Yeah. And 
I think it was more of a case of people getting bent out of shape because they felt they had to get bent out of shape. A lot of it was, was um, I, I don't know if you, you know about this, but the whole Tumblr movement. I have no idea what that is. Essentially, and this is this is generalising, but Tumblr is a website similar to Facebook and that. I know what Tumblr is. Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> I don't know what this, this movement so, is. Yeah. Can I just let you talk? And so that's, to me, where it started. Right, so they've looked at that cover with their own specific agenda yeah. and decided to to look at Marvel and say, we don't think you should be publishing this, but being very loud and vocal about it. Because, again, I, I want to keep saying I'm generalising because I, I, I don't want to, like, you know... <laughs> um, you don't want to bring the wrath down on you. <laughs> yeah. But it's one of those things as well where they will not research something... Because if they know the backstory, that will not benefit them in an argument. Right. So whereas they've they've employed Milo Minera yeah. to draw this cover with no context for who he may be mm. or what his art style is like. Yes. See, I don't know because I don't know this argument of which you speak. I don't. Ne- I don't know. I think there are much better targets to go after. Yeah. In comics, with regards to the degradation of women. Mm. than Amilo Manura Spider-Woman cover. Yeah. I think there are a certain other comics and comics creators who do things that I personally find a lot more distasteful than I found that cover. Yeah. But that's just me. I'm generally quite easygoing. I, I, I really like... Yeah, I'd say Adam Hughes and J. Scott Campbell are all really good artists, but mm-hmm. their portrayal of women... Is a lot yeah. more sexual than Manara's, but, but you, Manara is a, an erotic artist. But you can also argue, though, that Danger Girl has its cake and eats it. Yeah. Yes, it portrays the lead characters in a sexualised, sexy way. I would say more sexy yeah. than sexualised, unless you read the Naked issue. <laughs> Which I don't think Scott Campbell signed off on, but I could be wrong. I mm. think that may just be an internet creative thing. But the lead characters are women who are every bit as capable yeah. as the male protagonists. And the male protagonist in that is treated just as sexual as a female, yes. but he's portrayed to be quite dense. Yes, he is. But the flip side of that is, what's wrong you, you, with doing it the way Brubaker does it in Velvet? Yeah. Where Velvet Templeton is not only smart and capable, mm. and much smarter in many cases than many male agents, but she's also not dressed in provocative clothing for the majority of the run. Yeah. And then the flip side of that, Greg Rooker's Queen and Country run, with Carrie... Oh, I've forgotten her surname. Kelly. <laughs> Carrie, I don't think it's <laughs> Carrie Kelly. But that the, is also a fine depiction of women in comics. Yeah. But... I, I, I like to say I don't know this Tumblr argument that you spoke of, but I do think there are better targets to go after. I think than, it's just the time Marvel. it came out. Do you think? Well, yeah, this whole Tumblr thing and the pastiche thing. If this came out a few years back, it wouldn't have caused as much of a deal as it would do now. But what did people like Gail Simone and Kelly Sue DeConnick say about it? Oh, I don't know. Did they not say? See, if they weren't offended by it. Yeah. And they didn't say anything about it. Because let's be honest, they work in comics. Yes. So they know who their audience is. Mm. Now, you can try and break out of that audience as much as you want to. It's still a core audience. But it's still part of your core audience. Yeah. And, I'd see, I, I, I don't think it should have been banned. I don't think it should have been taken off the shelves. Of whether it was banned or whether it wasn't even published. I have no idea what Marvel did with it. Yeah. 
all things considered, it was quite a boring cover. Yeah. But it was so much better than the standard. Yeah, and also, in comparison to the story we're going to discuss tonight, it really doesn't give you a flavour of Minora's work. Yeah. Which, quite frankly, is beautiful. Mm. His artwork in this issue, and generally, because when it all kicked off about him, I was like, I don't know who this guy is. So I went and looked him up on the internet, and I actually thought, he's an absolutely gorgeous artist. Yeah, yeah. Is he Italian? He is. Right. All right, so maybe I'm just He's done loads of stuff as well, because I'd known him for this, but didn't know him. And I didn't know until last night writing this. Mm -hmm. I wrote my synopsis the night before. Of course. But I didn't know until then that he'd done uh, a cover for Biffy Clyro. For the album? Yeah. Right. Okay. See, that's what I mean, though. And I do wonder if it's people who know the burrest brushstrokes of what he does. Yeah. That he is an erotic artist and gone, we don't want this guy drawing mm. this image on this cover. Yeah. I thought it was storming a thimble, to be honest mm. with you. Uh, what I've Tasted of Desire was written by Neil Gaiman with artist by... But with artwork by Milo Manara, the title of which is considered to be from Robert Frost's poem Fire and Ice. Oh, some say I think you will die in fire. Yeah. That one? Mm. I remember that one, yeah. A woman named Kara recounts a tale of the only thing she's ever wanted. In her village, there was a young man she disliked, with a cocksure smile and a wolf like walk. The man was the son of the village chief and was well known by many of the village girls. They'd meet and talk, but she disliked him greatly due to his personality and reputation. One day, on his way to the brook to fish, and her way to the goats, they huddled together as they walked in the fog and spoke. After the day they spent together and the goodbyes, he left, walking on his own to return to the village. She'd see him around the village each time with a different woman, but after the day she'd spent with him, Kara had grown a deep desire for the man, and wanted him to want her just as much as she wanted him. The solution, she thought, the witch on the outskirts of the village. She brought the witch goat cheese and sausages in return for a favour. The witch asked if it's a love potion she's after, but Kara says it's not a potion, it's his want. The witch told Kara of a person she's to speak to, neither man nor woman, but both. She told her to wait until she feels her heart being tugged on by desire, and to watch out for the person with golden eyes. The young man went south on business, and his father, along with several of the village elders, traversed the river to negotiate with the folk across the river. The negotiations went badly, and the elders were sent back across in pieces. Feeling her heart being pulled, Kara wrapped her breast and wore the armour of a man, and set off to the south to inform the young man that his father was dead. In less than half a day of travelling, she came across a person who was neither a man nor woman, but looked upon her with golden eyes. They spoke for a long time, most of the conversation Kara couldn't remember, but the person gave her a smile and nothing more, before sending her off on her way, closer to the town, saving her time. She approached the coast town and into the closest hall, where she found the young man entertaining a local. She informed him that his father was dead and the two leave. They walked without saying a word until they took shelter from the rain in a cave. Sitting by the fire, he noticed that Kara was not a man, but the woman he'd spent the day with at the brook. Unlike many of the village girls, Kara rejected his advances, placing a sword between the two of them all night. They walked and Kara rejected offers of flowers and marriage, because if she did agree to marry him then he would grow tired and leave as soon as he had her. They returned and he became the village chief, and visited Kara with a gift every day. One day he arrived with a cut on his cheek and a torque in a bag. He said he took it from the neck of the man who killed his father and, if she would let him, 
He would like to place it around her neck at their wedding. That would be nice, she said. They married, and on their wedding night she finally gave herself to him, satisfying both their desires for each other. The village girls laughed as they saw them together, saying he'll get bored and be back in their beds the second her belly swells. He went to a meeting with the chiefs, but before he left, gave her a flower that she wore behind her ear until his return. One day, a group of men came to the village, seeking shelter, so she gave them hospitality, food and drink in their inn. As they sat, the leader of the group took the head of Kara's husband out of the sack and placed it on the table. Seemingly unfazed, Kara fed the men and spoke to them. Not too much, but not too little. Just enough to make them want her, and want her to want them. They argued and wrestled for her, annoying the leader of the group who had planned on shocking her, allowing them to rape and steal from the village. She sang to them and smiled, causing arguments and fights until the next day, when the men of the village returned from defending it from wolves and slaughtered the men. She had used their desires against them, as they had taken away the only thing she desired. She placed the flower from behind her ear behind his and told the men to bury him. As the years passed, she wanted nothing more. She had the only thing she had ever wanted and, although she married again and bore his children, had never decided anything other than the young man she disliked with the cocksure smile and the wolf-like walk. Finishing her tale, Kara sits in front of a fire as she waits for Desire's older sister. Oh, This was lovely. Yeah. I actually thought this was a really lovely little story in true Neil Gaiman fashion. It was really well told as well. Yeah. And She's talking to us as she... As the story's unfolding. Yeah. So basically it starts... I mean, it's being told in flashback. So... Which we only find out at yeah, the end. She's talking to us at the end, but in yeah, the form of her memories. But in the story as it's unfolding. Mm. So although she's looking over the, the fence, the wall... That's at the beginning sister of the story, at that point. Yeah. And then she runs through and she's talking... That's her, isn't it? Yeah. Because they both got ginger hair, so they both look exactly the same. <laughs> um, she does keep looking at the audience, yeah. us, and addressing us, breaking the fourth wall, which is very Shakespearean, mm. as well as Moonlighted. <laughs> but it was a couple of seasons ago. There's an awful lot of nudity in this story. Yeah. Because Milo Manura drew it. And that, but it fits into... Yeah. The story and the time because it's set. Because it's a story about desire. Yeah. The, the clues in the name. Mm. And it's one of those things as well where you're not being sexist if you accurately represent how women were treated in that time period. Mm. And at the same time, and she's obviously ahead of the game. Yeah. Neil Gaiman does a really good job of depicting her. She never gives in to him. Mm. And it's basically the taming of the shrew. Yeah. But, but violent. reversed. Yeah. But reversed and a little more violent. Mm. She's breaking him rather yeah. than the other way around. So it's it's exquisite in and the artwork. There's a nice bit of foreshadow on this panel with the cross and the river mm-hmm. where that man yeah. has the talk yeah. that he... Which looks like her. the amulet of the white tiger. Yeah. But that's that's the necklace that he gives her. So yeah. he's the guy who killed his dad. Yeah, it's, it's really well painted as well. It's really yeah, nicely painted. The artwork's absolutely gorgeous. I, I don't care what gender desire is, that's one good-looking person. Yeah, the guy with the yellow eyes. Yeah. Or girl with the yellow eyes. I suppose that's it's. the un- androgynous <laughs> nature of the character, isn't it? Basically, I see it as a girl. Yeah. Because obviously that's the way I go. It plays with desire, yeah, doesn't. But it plays either way, hmm. depending on, on which way you want it to go. Uh I, I really did like it. I thought it was very sweet. And in true Neil Gaiman fashion, 
it was kind of this twee little furry tail. Yeah. Until it turns into a grim furry tail at the end, mm. where they dump the head of her husband on the table in front of her, and she just carries on talking to them yeah. as if nothing's happened. She knows how to get back at them. Yeah. And it's the artwork by Milo Manura is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't sure about all the naked men wrestling at the end. Equality. Well, sure, all that's about. <laughs> but okay, so did she make them do that? Yeah, right. Because the whole point is it is she after meeting Desire. Yeah. She uses that against him, so he made the man desire her as the village girls desired him. Mm. So he she made him want her. And so, because of her doing that, she then made all those men, the other men, desire her. So she used that desire against them. It's it's really good. It's a really excellent little short story. And it's another one of those Neil Gaiman ones where I started reading it and I thought, this is going to be a twee little yeah. fable again, isn't it? And then you suddenly find yourself just sucked into it. Mm. Because his pacing and his dialogue is so good and the art is beautiful. And honestly, if you're one of those people who got bent out of shape over Milo Manura, then, you know, I can only assume that you don't like nudity or the human body. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what else to say about it, because I'm not, as somebody who's not offended by nudity, yeah. uh, either in comics or on films or whatever, this didn't bother me in the slightest. I mean, the thing is, n- naked women, yeah, sure, but you've got a naked man the entire way through it as well. Well, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's everybody's naked at various yeah, different yeah. points throughout and the show. Ju- yeah, yeah ju- the woman in it is a, a strong female lead in the story. Yeah. That she controls all the men. Yeah, and she's the one who runs the village. Yeah. So it, it was a lovely little story. Um, it was a really nice ending as well. And a very, yeah, when she's waiting for, yeah. as you pointed out, she's waiting for the elder sister, which of course is death. Death, yeah. Which was, it was, it was great. It was a really nice, sweet, little Grimm's furry tale, mm. which is kind of what Neil Gaiman did every week in Sandman, or every month in Sandman. Yeah. This was past, post the series, wasn't it? This is, yeah. this is your absolute volume five. And this was um, for the anniversary, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to harper on about the Milo Manura controversy, but his artwork in this one strip is absolutely gorgeous. And I do, I I don't wonder. I don't know. I don't know what caused it. I don't know whether it's the fact that Spider Woman's that costume just almost depicts her as being naked anyway. Yeah, but her costumes always done that. Costumes for. Every superhero yeah, has done that. No one complained when Carmine Infantino was drawing Spider Woman and just gave her a peach shaped ass. Yeah. So he was only kind of following in the tradition of the other artists that did it. And he's an absolutely brilliant fine artist. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful fine art. And you know there are some there are some places where Sandman got banned from being in public libraries because of stuff like this. Yeah. It? It's one of those things where what Sandman did though was give what was literary an actual physical form what is seen in the panels is no worse than what is seen in words in the pages of a book hmm. and you know sex is part of life Yeah, deal with it people are naked under their clothes deal with that <laughs> I don't get this hang up over nudity and sex I mm. just don't understand it I can't I can't wrap my head around it maybe it's just because we've grown up be more, I mean, despite the reputation we have of no sex, please, we're British, we're actually quite open-minded about stuff like that. I see a naked bloke every week. 
<laughs> yes, you do in your in your art class. <laughs> <laughs> How does that make you feel? It's I've gone past it. It's a little bit wrong. Yeah. I, I see him in the bistro later, and it's like bloody hell! You're different. Take your clothes off. You look you look different with your clothes on. <laughs> feel free to uh, to take them off and enjoy a, a tasty beverage with us. I won't get a hot one just in case it spills. Because that wouldn't be good. Good choice. Mm. I liked that. I'm, I'm kind of glad I changed from death to desire. Well, desire is more desirable. Yeah. And death. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? I guess so. In yeah. many ways. Are we done? Uh, yeah, I guess Are so. Are we done now with that? Well, yeah, it was good, that. Um, uh, apparently, Neil Gaiman said it was based on a Celtic tale. Oh, right. Not one that he made up, like Endless Nights, no. where he said that was based on myth and legend and everyone believed it. Yeah. <laughs> he just actually, I just made it all up. I'm a writer, that's what we do. Next time on an new episode. Of Hey Kids Comics, we are going back to Earth 2. Brave and the Bold, issue 200, features Batman teaming up, kind of, (laughs) with Batman. And then Pulp Heroes is a weird western tale. Hitman Annual 1 is a coffin full of dollars. So Hitman and Brave and the Bold coming your way next week. You've not decided what you're covering yet, have you? Not yet. But as usual, you only normally decide at the last minute. I have an idea. Do you? Yeah. So we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Goodbye. So don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.